0: Our scripture reading today is from James 2, 14 through 26. This is found on page 1012 in your pew Bible. If you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to take that one home as a gift from us. What is good? What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by his works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from the, from works is dead. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks so much, Jude. Good morning. Welcome to the Brookside Campus of Christ community. Uh, my name is Taylor. I'm one of the, the pastors here, and it's my joy now to lead us in a time of teaching. Uh, so if you haven't already, we're just going to jump right in. Uh, if you haven't already, go ahead and open your Bible to James chapter 2. Um, I think the its page number was page 1012. And so uh, if you have one of those Bibles in the seat in front of you, you can, you can look it up there uh, or use the table of contents if you want to, uh, if you want to do that as well. But open uh, your Bible up to James chapter 2. It'll help to be in the text that we're going to walk through today so that we can understand uh, kind of what James is saying and follow his thro- flow of thought a little bit. So it'd be good to have a Bible open in front of you. Uh, we are in the second week now of a series that, that we started last week uh, through the book of James that we're calling Real faith. So we're walking through the book of James, a little letter that was written by James, or Jesus' brother, um, and, and we're calling this series Real Faith. And the idea behind this series is built around uh, what Pastor Bill helped us see last week. So if you were with us last week, you might remember that, that Pastor Bill showed us that God wants real faith for us. That God wants real faith for us. The kind of faith that God wants for us is the real kind. Now what do we mean by real faith? The first thing we mean when we talk about real faith is that it's faith that deals with real things. In fact, you can't read James' letter to these these scattered Christians. Many of you have probably read at least bits and pieces of it before. You can't read this letter without noticing just how immensely practical this letter is. Like, James deals with real, earthy stuff here. If you were with us last week, you might remember that he kicked just right into it right away with suffering right off the bat doesn't get much more real and earthy than that, and he goes on in the rest of the letter to talk about things like the way that we talk to each other, the ways that we are tempted by sin, the fights that we have with one another, especially in church, the, the plans that we make and the details of our schedules. He talks about the desires of our heart, the, the dreams that we have, the difficulty of waiting for a season of suffering to end, that one hits home in my real life. He talks about speaking with honesty, about living with, with integrity, about caring for the, for the poor and healing the sick and praying for and anointing the hurting with oil, about restoring those who have wandered from God back to faith. And all of these things we're going to talk about more in the coming week. But just for this morning, just notice how real that stuff is. Like, these are the things we come face-to-face with in our daily Monday life. And one of James's goals in this little letter is to give some practical wisdom for, for when the rubber of our faith meets the road of real life. So he's talking about real faith, faith that deals with real things. But there's another connected idea behind this Real Faith series. It's it's sort of like it, but a little bit different. It lies underneath, actually, almost everything that James says in this letter. And it's expressed most clearly in the text that that Jude read so well for us this morning in James 2. And let me me just share a little bit of a summary uh, of where James is going to take us this morning. His idea uh, for Real Faith goes something like this. That there is a kind of faith that is real, genuine, authentic, useful, effective, and alive. There's that, that's one kind of faith, a real, genuine, authentic, useful, effective, living faith. But then he says there's also this, this second kind of faith. And that's the kind of faith that is, is fake, futile, worthless, worthless. And above all of that, even worse than that, he says, a faith that's Dead. When I read that, all I could think of this week was the, the Star Trek meme of McCoy talking to, to Kirk, saying, it's worse than that, he's dead, Jim. Any Star Trek fans in here? So there's these two kinds of faith in James' mind. There's, there's the real, authentic, alive faith, and there's the, the fake, worthless, useless, dead faith. In fact, he's going to suggest that the second kind of faith, the, the, the dead kind, isn't really faith at all. You couldn't really call it faith And his goal in this letter and in this section we're looking at today is to help his readers make sure that their faith is the the real, genuine, useful kind of faith. And that's what I want to do this morning with us, too, is I want to make sure that you and I have that kind of faith, too. And James gets right into it. He poses his key question kind of right off the bat for us. So look with me, starting in verse 14, at this question that he, he, he poses for us. He says, what good is it? my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? So we see immediately what James is concerned about. We could, if we wanted to, rephrase his question like this, is faith without works real faith? Is faith without works real faith? He even goes as far as to ask, is faith without works saving faith? the kind of faith that that can save you. And the way this question is worded in James's rhetoric, it's obvious that James is suggesting that the answer to this question is no. That that kind of faith cannot save someone. It's not real faith. We see that suggestion most clearly because he asks the question, what good is it? Like, is that kind of faith any good? Now, I think that this passage should come with a trigger warning. Because you might be getting a little squeamish in the pews already. So if you've been around church at all, immediately you probably have alarms just going off in your head. Like, wait a minute. I thought the whole thing about this Jesus thing was that we're saved by faith and not by works. Isn't that that kind of what it's all about? What's, what's going on here? At face value, it appears that there would be tension between what James is saying here and what someone like the Apostle Paul says in places like Romans and Galatians, where it are justified by faith. So clearly we need to do a little bit of work together this morning to unpack what James means. And the first thing we need to get clear on is just the terms that he is using. To start, we need to clarify what James and Paul both mean when they use the word works. See, when Paul is talking about works— he's usually talking about what we would call works of the law. So things like like circumcision and the, the observance of the Torah. In fact, a lot of Paul's ministry when he's talking about like, uh, the uselessness of works and the importance of faith is that he's kind of going around where there are people that are following around to the different places he's planted churches and saying, yeah, that faith in Jesus thing, that's great. But in addition to that, you need to be circumcised. And you need to do these other things, these other works, and then you will earn acceptance from God. And so Paul, he's talking about these kinds of works of the law, but James uses the word a little bit differently, and it helps to look at the end of chapter one, I think, where where James says something similar. Here's what he says in in verses 20 through through 25 of chapter one. It's on the screen. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but what? A doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He will be blessed in his doing. That phrase, doer who acts, is literally the phrase in the Greek, doer of the work. That's the same Greek word, it's the word ergon, uh, that James uses in, in chapter 2 to talk about works. So when James is talking about works, he's, he's literally talking about something more like actions or, or deeds, in fact, I think if you, if you sum up James' argument in this section neatly, it would be something along these lines. That real faith acts. The real faith acts. The kind of faith that is genuine kind, the, the living kind, the useful kind, that kind of faith acts. And if it doesn't act, it isn't authentic faith. That's where James is taking us. And it's okay to kind of, if you're feeling a little bit of that tension still, to kind of sit in that tension some this morning and invite James to walk us through and show us how he gets there. So we're going to walk the, through this passage. And as we do, I think James is going to show us three ways that, that faith, real faith acts. And he uses a number of, of images and illustrations that are going to be helpful for us in, in really grasping this point. But three ways that real faith acts. And the first is this, that real faith acts in mercy. Real faith acts in mercy. Look how James begins, the the very first thing he says to defend his thesis in verse 15. Here's what he says. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. Here's that question again. What good is that? so also faith by itself, that's an important clause, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now unfortunately, because of the uncomfortability that we can have today in our tradition reconciling James's words with Paul's words, uh, what we usually do when we're talking about this text is we strip it from its original context and deprive it of some of the original intentions that James had behind this section. See, just before this, at the beginning of chapter 2, which, which Bill is going to lead us in looking at next week, just before this, James has spent time discussing how Christians are supposed to interact with the poor. He, he's, he's emphasized already that, that they should not play favorites, but that, that their faith should cause them to honor and care for the poor in their midst as much as those who have more means. So he, he's kind of spent some time talking about this, and then in the same breath, he uses this example of workless faith. He has them imagine a, a, a person, and I actually want to invite us to do that together this morning to join him in that imagination exercise. I just want you to, to, to picture a person. Imagine a person, and it's a person who is dressed poorly. The language would suggest close to naked. A person who doesn't have daily food, the daily bread that we ask for in the Lord's prayer. Imagine a person who is clearly desperate and needy like this. They're they're suffering regularly, and it's clear. And that person comes into contact with what James says is one of you. Translation, a Christian. That person comes into contact with a Christian And that Christian sees that person and they respond to them by saying, What? Go in peace. Be warmed and filled. But he says they don't do anything to give them what they need. This picture is a shocking picture. At least it should be. And one of the reasons it's so shocking is just the major difference between their words and their actions, right? Like their words seem kind and encouraging. They even use the same prayerful benediction that we say every week at Christ community at the end of the service. They say, go in peace. This is kind of like in The Hobbit when Bilbo says good morning, but he really means go away. (laughs) That's kind of the idea. Go in peace. And they even recognize what that person needs. They need warmth. They need food. It says be warm and fed. They even say, go as far as to say that they want them to have it. It sounds like a kind, encouraging wish. But again, they do absolutely nothing to help them out. Their words have a veneer of kindness and compassion, but they ring empty and hollow, don't they? In fact, in my opinion, they're outright offensive. Because that person's either asking by saying, go in peace, be warmed and filled, they're either asking that poor person to warm and fill themselves or hoping that someone else will when they clearly have the means to do so. This image is shocking. Now this image should be even more shocking for the Christian listener because of God's consistent concern for the poor across the pages of Scripture. From the Torah to the prophets to Jesus to Paul, God makes it clear not only do I care about the poor, but my primary means for caring for the poor is through my people. God wants his people to share materially with those in need. That should be a distinctive marker for Jesus' followers, and there's not even a question about it. And yet these people do nothing in James' image. Now the point he's making is is pretty clear. That faith that does nothing is like telling a hungry person to be fed and withholding your food. It's like you're holding some Taco Bell, and someone asks you for food, and you're like, "I I hope you can get some. Faith that does nothing is like telling a naked person that you hope they find clothes while your closet remains full. So James asked the same question here about this scenario that he asked at the start. Like, what good is that? What good is it to own a book and never read it? What good is it to own an outfit and never wear it? What good is it to cook food and not eat it? What good is it to buy a disc golf disc and never throw it? That one might be more for me. This is the simple idea behind James's words, that faith that does nothing isn't faith at all. Faith that does nothing isn't faith at all. Faith that is really there always, inevitably, shows itself. So I have another meme for you to help us out. Uh, I don't know, I've spent some time, I went pretty deep into this meme this week. Have you seen this meme? It's like the guy's like poking, he's like, come on, do something. I went, like I said, I kind of did a deep dive into this meme this week, so I have a few for you. I hope that you'll indulge me as I, as I share some of my favorites. This one just relates to me uh, pr- a lot. That's how I felt this week as I was trying to work. I was like, come on, brain, do something, please. Uh, this next one, this is how I felt last November when it just took forever for the election results to come in. Uh, I was like, refresh, 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 come on, do something, map, please. Um... This next one, I don't invest, and I definitely don't invest in Bitcoin, but some of you might. Any investment might feel like this, like, come on, do something. (laughs) Uh, It's football season, so it's time to troll the Cowboys. And then this last one relates to me the most, uh, because it's me talking to me, saying, you should probably do something. Come on, do something. Aren't these good? My next sermon is just going to be all memes, okay? (laughs) It's the way of the future. We're just going there, uh, But I think if you summarize the book of James, or at least this point here in a meme, it might look like this. I created my own this week. Like James poking Christians saying, like, come on, do something. See, where Paul is talking to Christians most often who are trying to add works of the law to faith in Jesus in order to earn salvation, James is more like poking Christians who aren't doing anything and saying, come on, do something you don't have to raise your hand, but how many of you have ever wanted to poke a Christian and say that? I have, and I'm sure at some point someone has wanted to poke me before and say the same thing, like, come on, do something. And honestly, maybe you're here this morning, and you're a little bit skeptical about faith, or or you came with a friend and you're curious, but the consistent thing that has held you back is encountering empty and hollow Christians who have no actions to back up their words. My guess is if that's you, this is a message that you've probably wanted to preach a time or two. And I think you would have good reason to. Because one of the central areas that the gospel should compel us to act is in care for the poor and marginalized. Our faith should pour out inevitably into acts of mercy, into helping those people and those in need in a tangible way. Faith that is alive is a faith that acts in mercy. It cannot be any other way. So can I ask you this morning, friends, has your faith changed anything about the way you interact with the least of these? Has your faith changed anything about the way you interact with the least of these? And if not, can it really be faith? Because real faith acts in mercy. Mercy. Here's the next thing that James shows us about faith. Not only does it act in mercy, but he says real faith acts in love. Real faith acts in love. He continues with another illustration of the same point, so he's unpacking the same main idea, same point about faith and works in verse 18. Here's here's what he says. He says, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So James seems to be arguing with someone, maybe it's someone who's made up, or maybe it's an actual Christian that he's, he's engaged with, who thinks that you can have one without the other. Either you can have works and not faith, or you can have faith and not works, and it doesn't really matter. Just pick one. Like, you do you. You do your faith thing, I'll do my works thing, and, and we'll be good. And James's defense to this idea is simple. He says, how are you going to show me that you have faith without doing anything? Like, how are you going to show me that that faith is there? Meanwhile, I will have no problem demonstrating my faith through my actions. See, for James, faith and works, they're inseparable. You can't have one without the other. And to bring home this point, he uses a really, really haunting example in verse 19. And maybe you've you've heard this before. Here's what he says. He says, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So James here is bringing to the forefront the most foundational theological assertion for the Jewish faith, and that's that God is one. That's the most foundational thing, if you are um, a, a religious Jewish person, the most foundational thing you can believe is that God is one. It has its origins all the way back in Deuteronomy 6 in what is known as the Shema, because the first word of it is here, which is the Hebrew word Shema, so we call it the Shema, and here's what it says. It says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That was like Jewish Doctrine 101, the Lord is one. And James takes on an almost sarcastic tone here. He basically says like, okay, oh, so you have have sound doctrine? You believe that God is one? And then this absolutely chilling line, you do well. All I can think of when I read this is like a villain or a boss in a video game just clapping when you finally come face to face with them, like, good job. You've done really well to get here to me. Like, this isn't a commendation from James. It's kind of half-mocking. Because James says that idea that the Lord is one, that's something that even demons believe. Sound doctrine alone, believing the right things about God, puts your faith on par with a servant of the enemy. Like, just think about that for a second. Scholars Craig Blomberg and Miriam Kamel explain the full force of this verse in such a good way. I think this is a great quote. Here's what they say. They say, Satan and all his evil hordes are monotheists. Even they know there is only one God and that his loyalties remain undivided. In fact, demons are so certain of the existence of the one God that they are horrified. But even that does not bring them to salvation because their knowledge does not change their behavior in other words demons they're overwhelmed by the truth of jesus just think about how many times in the gospels where jesus like is casting out a demon and the demon's like you're the son of god and jesus is like yes you're so much further along than my disciples <laughs> they're so overwhelmed by the truth of jesus yet their response may, remains one of fear and never becomes one of faith But that belief, the belief that God is one, it's actually always been intended to elicit a responsive faith. Some of you might know this, but there's a verse that comes right after Deuteronomy 6-4. It's verse 5. Whoa, what? Crazy. Yeah. And it goes like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. The indicative truth that God is one is followed by an imperative action, go love God. In fact, that word Shema, that Hebrew word Shema that's translated here, it literally means hear and obey. There was no idea in Hebrew thought of hearing something without doing something in response. Those things always went hand in hand. And you might remember that Jesus returns to the Shema when he's asked, what is the greatest commandment? And he adds on to it, not only to love the Lord your God with everything you have, but to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, real faith acts in love. Genuine faith is rooted in in a love and intimacy with the Father. That's where it starts. And then it expresses itself. It shows itself to loving actions toward God and neighbor's. And the Apostle Paul, he actually affirms this idea in the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians is probably the book you'd look to first and say, this is where Paul is most clear about this justification by faith thing. But in the book of Galatians, in the same breath, the same letter, the same pinstroke, he says this in verse 6 of chapter 5, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith doing what? Working itself out through love. Only faith working through love counts for anything. Paul agrees with James. Faith works itself out through love. It begins by receiving God's grace that's completely unmerited. It saturates itself in this loving intimacy with Jesus, and then it pours itself out in concrete actions and changed behavior. Many of you know that I have an an incredible wife, Ashton. And I love her dearly and truly. Um, She's amazing. And I tell her all the time, this is actually something I do a lot, I I tell her I love her multiple times a day. I tell her I love her a lot. But imagine that I tell her I love her every day, but then I don't do anything that she asks me to do. I say, I love you, and she says, thank you. And she says, can you do the dishes? And I say, I'm going golfing. And the longer that goes on, if I do nothing, how likely is she to keep believing my words? Don't they sound kind of empty and meaningless after a while? I mean, she would have legitimate grounds at that point to question whether my love for her is real and genuine if I never do anything that she asks me to do. And in the same way, our love for Jesus and our faith in him is demonstrated most clearly in our obedience to him. Our senior pastor, Tom Nelson, likes to say that that Jesus' love language is obedience. His love language is obedience, and he's right. I mean, look at John 14, 15. Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, keep my commands. It's that simple. If you love me, show it to me by keeping my commands. Love always has been and always will be the proper response to true doctrine. And Jesus' love language is obedience. In other words, the reality of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the receiving of God's grace lavished upon us, the faith that, that trusts him in all things, if it's real faith, should cause us to respond by acting in love for God and for others. So can I ask you another question? Has the reality of Jesus that you believe fostered a love for God in your heart? Has it fostered a love for God? And equally, has it led you to do things out of love for others that are compelled by your trust in him? Where you said, I did that act of love because of my faith in Jesus. Has it done that? Has it caused you to respond in love? And if not, can it really be faith? Real faith acts in love. And this already gets us to our final observation, which is closely connected, and that's this, that real faith acts in obedience. Real faith acts in obedience. We already touched on this, but but James brings his argument to a close by by stating his point in, in the strongest way possible, and he gives us a couple more examples to help us continue to understand his point. Look what he says in verse 20. He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, he's getting a little heated now, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, if you weren't already a bit uncomfortable, James just took your feet and put them right up to the fire. He says, yes, faith without works does nothing. It's useless. And to prove my point, I'm going to bring up Abraham and say Abraham was justified by works. He says, Abraham's the example of someone who was justified by works. And the scene James is referring to is is a scene that comes in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, If you don't know the story, here's what I found on Sparknotes. Abraham was childless. God promised Abraham he was going to have a child. Abraham waited a long time and still didn't have a child. Then finally, when he was super old, God gave him a child. And then, after God had given him a child, God asked Abraham to sacrifice that child to kill him. And Abraham did what God asked. He brought his son Isaac right up to the altar on the mountain and was prepared to offer him. And God provided an animal instead. So Abraham didn't actually have to sacrifice his son, but his actions showed that he was willing and that he trusted God. Here's how James analyzes that event. That's like the 30-second the, the summary of that, that story. It's much longer. Here's how James analyzes it, though. He says, you see that faith was active along with his works, so the faith and works, they're doing things together, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see, I to say it right out, that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, and that's probably better translated by faith that is alone. Now this seems like the most different point you could possibly make from the Apostle Paul at face of who says in the book of Romans, he actually uses the example of Abraham to prove his point that people are justified by faith. He says Abraham was justified by faith, and here James says Abraham was justified by works. Like, what in the world is going on here? Well, there's a final thing we need to clarify on, on this Paul's, Paul James front, and we've already hinted at it a little bit. See, when Paul says that we are justified by faith, it's important to note that he is talking about works that precede conversion so these works of the law or even just actions good deeds things you're trying to do things that come before you trust and start following jesus he's talking about works of the law that that would merit salvation or, or earn acceptance by god and he makes it abundantly clear and please hear me make this abundantly clear to you this morning that those things do not save us we cannot earn god's grace he gives it freely without condition There's no prior condition that you have to meet for God to show you grace and receive forgiveness of sin. That's what Paul's talking about. He's talking about works that precede conversion. And Abraham's a prime example of it. See, God made promises to Abraham starting in chapter 12 before Abraham did a single thing. (laughs) He made promises to Abraham. And Abraham believed God before he saw any of those promises fulfilled, before he saw God do anything. So promises came first. It's just like grace. James, however, is talking about life of the believer after conversion, after they begin to follow Jesus. He's talking about works that that follow an initial moment of faith. See, he's not talking about earning. He's talking about effort. And there's a key difference there. No one has helped us understand this distinction better than Dallas Willard. Here's what he says. He says, grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. Earning is an attitude, effort is an action. It's kind of like working to make the team versus working because you are a part of the team. I played, played sports in high school, I played football in high school, and you probably look at me and you're like, you know what? No way, you played football? That's crazy. Um, no, I did. Uh, really, I did. And because I went to a small school in the middle of Kansas, I didn't have to do anything to make the team. I did not have to work at all. There are no tryouts at small schools in Central Kansas. No, they come and find you and they say, please, please, please play football. We only have 40 guys in the school and you're one of them. We need you. So I didn't have to do much to be part of the team. But when I was part of the team, I worked. I worked hard. I had to run and I hate running. I had to push a tackle dummy 100 yards, which was awful. I lifted weights, I memorized plays, I put forth effort because I was a part of the team. I already belonged, but I did not earn my place on the team. I didn't earn my belonging. I wanted to do my best to contribute as much as possible, but that was as someone who was already part of the team. See, Paul is usually talking to people who think they have to do something in order to earn God's grace, and James is talking to people who are making no effort to live out their faith after receiving God's grace. In James's mind, true and genuine faith will inevitably generate obedient acts. It just has to. We could also say it like this, that faith includes works. Faith includes works. Works are our necessary component of faith. So like if, if faith and works were a Venn diagram, the works circle would be a part fully inside of the faith circle. Like faith includes works. And that's where Abraham is also a great example. See, Abraham, long before he was asked to sacrifice his son, he believed God. He had faith that God would give him a son, make him a great nation, give him land—excuse me, land and seed and blessing like he said and promised. But if you were to ask the question, is Abraham's faith real? Like, did he really trust God? Look no further than the mountain where he bound his son and prepared to kill him. Ashton and I have been waiting to have kids for a while. And if God ever gives me a son, I could not imagine doing something like that. How could that not be authentic faith? James includes another example that's similar from the Old Testament. I just love that he includes this here. It's the example of a woman named Rahab. Read verse 25 with me. He says, In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now another quick uh, summary of a Bible story. Rahab was the woman who helped the spies of Israel escape Jericho when they went to check it out. Rahab is mentioned at a number of key moments in Scripture, and not only because she played this vital role in in the Israelites taking the land that God was giving them, not only because of the role she played, but she's also mentioned a number of times in Scripture just because she's seen as a profound example of faith. The the Hebrews 11 kind of grand faith passage includes Rahab, so many other places. She's in Jesus' genealogy. Because even though she was a Canaanite prostitute, she saw the power of Yahweh and concluded it would be better to side with him. And her trust that Yahweh would lead Israel to victory over her people led her to action. She saved the spies, she saved her family, she lied to her king, all because she trusted the power of Yahweh. And just like Abraham, her faith was put on full display in the actions it led her to take. We could say that her faith was completed by her works, like my faith in the the structural integrity of a chair is completed when I sit down on it. And what James is doing by, by including Abraham and Rahab is basically saying this, that this is how faith works for everyone. Insider, outsider, male, female, rich, poor, for everyone. Any faith that is worth calling faith at all must produce acts of obedience as he said earlier, we must not only hear the word, but do it. So another question for you. Has your faith in Jesus launched you into a life of growing obedience? Has your faith in Jesus launched you into a life of growing obedience? Has it changed anything about you? And if not, can it really be? James brings this whole whole argument to a climactic conclusion uh, and states his claim as decisively as possible in, in verse 26. Read this last verse with me. "For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. It's dead, faith. A couple months ago, our, our staff, our Brookside staff, was, was recertified in, in CPR. Uh, so we all gathered in the basement with a structure, we had the dummies out, we did the compressions, all of that, did the whole thing. And the whole time we did it, I just couldn't stop thinking uh, of the office episode where they do the CPR training, you know what I'm talking about? It's an iconic scene. Now, thankfully, it went better than that. Bill didn't cut off the face of a dummy and wear it. Like, you can trust us with your kids, I promise, okay? <laughs> you can't. But one of the things that they reminded us about, which is easy to forget, is all of the stuff that you do before you try to match the tempo of staying alive. So before you do the compression thing, what do you need to make sure you do? Put your hand over their mouth to see if you feel warmth. Put your ear next to them and see if you can hear breath. Do it again a couple of times. And all you're doing at that point is that you're checking for signs of life because the signs of life will determine your course of action. You don't want to defibrillate someone who is alive. It'd be a bad idea. You don't want to do chest compressions on someone who's already breathing. You have to check for the signs of life. And that concept helped me wrap my head around James' words here about dead faith. Because really, more than anything, I think James is helping us check our faith for signs of life. And what I want to ask you this morning is this, as we close. Does your faith have these signs of life? Does your faith have signs of life? Obedience, love, mercy. These are all of the vital signs of a faith that is living. It's the primary evidence of a faith that is truly genuine. The proof of of a functioning and and vigorous and, and flourishing faith. Does your faith have signs of life? Another thing we could ask along these lines is, like, is there something that you can point to in your life that makes you a little bit weird for Jesus? (laughs) Like, are you able to point to something and say, that thing changed because of Jesus? There's a place where I obeyed Jesus that I never would have before. I did that thing because I trust Jesus. Is there something like that that you can point to, observable, demonstrable actions? And maybe you're here this morning, and kind of your whole life around the church, you've been been operating out of a God-doesn't-really-want-to-change-me mindset. Or maybe you, you like to think, I did that one deed, I said my one prayer, I'm good. But the question James would ask was, do you have the consistent evidence of a changed life that is the sign that your faith is alive? Do you see that evidence of a life that's changed? Maybe you're here, and you're kind of the opposite person. You have the signs of life, but you don't really have the source of life. Like maybe you're the the spirit of works without the body of faith. You care for the poor, you do loving things, but it's not because you have intimacy with Jesus. You're not obeying him, you're just doing it because you think they're good things to do. That's not faith either. Does your faith have signs of life? Now as we close, I just want to make clear, James, his goal is not to make you think that that these things are a way of earning the kingdom or to make you constantly worry that you've lost your salvation. That's not going to happen. And it's also not to make you think once you stop or hit a dry spell, uh, you know, stop doing actions, you feel a little dead and dry in your faith, man, I'm out of it, I'm out of God's grace and favor. God doesn't work like that. See, the goal is not judgment and shame, but just reflection. Reflection. Because real faith acts in mercy and love and obedience. Not because those actions get you something or make you feel better about yourself, but simply because that's just what real faith does. Amen? We pray. God, this morning I just I just want to rest sit under the the waterfall of your grace. I just want to sit and rest and meditate on the amazing and beautiful truth that we don't have to do anything to earn your grace. To make you Follow through on your promises. God, thank you that you have chosen to to come and redeem us that that, that, uh, different than basically every other world religion, that that, that this Christianity is not that, that we had to climb our way up to you, but you came down to us. You sat in the pit of sin and shame and suffering and death with us and put your arm around us and made a way out of it. And we could not do anything to earn or deserve that. God, help us rest in that this morning. And God, at the same time, I pray that you would remind us that no actions we could do could be done apart from your grace that sustains and empowers us. That it's because of you that we can even act in obedience and love and mercy. So God, would you you just give us the eyes to, to examine and look inward and check for those vital signs in our faith. God, help us to see where you are calling us to obey you more fully, to love you more deeply, to be more merciful to those around us. God, would we not be the Christian that has to be poked to do something to live out our faith, but God, would we live faithfully and fruitfully as your children? We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, by the power of his Spirit. Amen.